And good afternoon. Welcome to the second of this semester's security seminars. Uh, today we have a presentation from the newest full-time employee at Sirius, uh, Pascal Munier. Pascal originally did his uh, PhD in biophysics and while at Purdue took a security course and worked on a project involving singing passwords as a way to remember them. The idea was very intriguing. He got really hooked on the idea of information security and has been with us ever since. When he completed his master's degree, he joined us and is now one of our staff scientists and is in charge of our technology park extension. And today he's going to talk to you about one of the projects he's been working on over the summer, the Serious Incident Response Database. So please join me in welcoming Pascal. Thank you. So this project is uh, a database for gathering costs and incidents information uh, on types of security events. The problem that this is uh, trying to solve is to collect accurate data about the cost and the frequency of types of incidents. And that brings the problem, how do you classify incidents? Uh, survey of different universities found that they were all using different classification of incidents. So when they tried to analyze the data and gather it and uh, assemble it into a coherent whole, they found that it was very difficult to do. So what is the solution? One approach would be to force the adoption of a standard classification that everybody would adhere to, uh, assuming that you can come up with one classification that is appropriate and correct for everybody. The other way would be to provide a, uh, a mechanism through which you can translate classifications. Another problem is um, how can such a database help uh, administrators find the cause of the incident? Uh, all this, this, the only symptom you may have is that uh, your process died or the machine crashed uh, or, or very vague details like that or you may uh, find that somebody has uh, left a rootkit in your machine and so has corrupted uh, the, the, the various mechanisms to log in and to record events in, in the machine. So from that, where do you go to look for the, the way they went into your machine and broke into it? The other, another problem is um, how to support incident response activities. When there are many people involved, um, for example, you may, you may need expertise from someone at CERT to resolve a problem. And at the same time, you may want to uh, assemble an archive, complete archive of the incident for later analysis. And on top of it all, how do you do that in a secure manner uh, while protecting information from 
uh, other people who aren't supposed to see it. For example, at Purdue University, if there's an incident in uh, CS, maybe they don't want people in biology to know about it, or, or vice versa, and versus departments would want to uh, protect the people involved from other people who shouldn't know. So here are the important players in this area. Uh, the first is the CVE, it's the Common Vulnerability Enumeration. Um, it's a tool uh, that gives a tag name to all publicly known vulnerabilities. Uh, it consists of a board of editors that reviews the vulnerabilities and votes on them as being properly described. And the list is accessible here at this URL. Another useful tool is uh, the ICAT database by the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, the difference between this one and the CVE is that it provides cross-references and information on patches, and it's also searchable by uh, a variety of criteria. Um, another influence is uh, the ICAMP project and the two reports that they've produced. Uh, I cited just a moment ago one of their results when they were looking at the classification and use at various universities. Um, they are the one who did the pioneer, pioneering work in trying to find out uh, which vulnerabilities happen most often and how to uh, analyze the, their costs. And then there's the SANS organism. Uh, for system administration, network, and security. Uh, and you can access it at this URL. Uh, one of their important contributions, for example, is the top 10 list, uh, which is the, the list of the 10 most often exploited vulnerabilities. Actually, it's, it's also categories of vulnerabilities. Just a little bit more about ICAT. Um, as I said, it's searchable by various criteria, which, is, which are very close to a classification. Um, it provides very useful links also to other databases. And it contains most of the CVE records, and they have the goal of having all the CVE database classified and accessible there in a relatively short amount of time. We're talking about in a month. They, they provide, a, um, actually they will provide shortly uh, a classification by which you will be able to find CVEs uh, by the, the kind of attacks that they will allow. For example, penetration of the type root, root access, or for normal users, or other types of penetration. DOS is denial of service attacks. And Recon would be like just probing your system, trying to find out what services are running on it, so as to mount an attack later. Now, an important observation that, that I made early on in the process, um, and that is inspired by the people who worked on the personal software process. 
people familiar with software engineering will know that the personal software process is a way of recording the time you spend on various activities so you can improve your, your programming and your software skills. Well, uh, this very important observation is that <coughs> the reporting on your activity has to be done on the spot as it happens. Otherwise, if you try to do it at the end of the day and recall by memory, you will get it uh, very wrong. <laughs> so I concluded that it would be very nice if the incident report database would support real-time response to incidents. So we built this as a web-based database. Um, in principle, with one repository f f per organization. The advantage is that it's, ac it's accessible all the time uh, from any incident, anywhere, any lab, any machine almost. Um, alternatively, if, if um, you're a small company and, and you don't have, you don't want to mess with installing it and you trust us, then uh, we could give you a, a domain in which you could work and in which your information would be protected. Uh, other advantages is that um, if you're looking at the incident response database and wondering if you want to deploy it, then you can remotely look at it. The web brings other advantages. For example, it's platform independent. You can look at it and use it on Unix, Windows, Macintosh, anything. Um, Another important advantage is that you can cooperate with it remotely with, with other experts. You can share the data and you can have them uh, not, not like a chat, but uh, you can make your data visible to each other and interact that way. Another advantage is that um, the statistics about what happens uh, can be could be remotely accessible if you allow them to be. Disadvantages, of course, is are that uh, well, if your network is down, then you won't be able to use it. And in addition, um, the scheme I used well, yeah, you can't get a easily away from uh, the passwords, user passwords. So if you use weak passwords, then some, if someone, someone can guess them, you're vulnerable. The way it works basically is that through SSL, uh, a user would give his password to the incident response database and then would get in return a cookie with a random number it's, that we call a nonce uh, with 20 random character. And then whenever you ask for a web page, uh, the database asks for the nonce back, and because it's uh, a huge random number, it's very unlikely that anybody else can guess what it is. So if you give me the right nonce, I will conclude that, yes, you have access to the database and you are who you say you are. Uh, the problem with that is that you have to trust the computer on which you're working. So it might be a better idea not to work on the computer that's been compromised. Uh, 
and uh, often cookies may live after you've closed the session. Let's say you log out or, or whatever, the cookie might still be there. So uh, in order to control that, um, the database makes the cookie so that they expire after 24 hours. And it also sends a command to the browser so that the cookie is overwritten when you log out of the system. Uh, and in addition, when you log out, the IRDB remembers the nonce, and if this nonce is ever sent back to the IRDB, then somebody will, uh, the, the IRDB will notice that, well, it's already been used, it's invalid now. The session is finished. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the database works and how it's constructed. You've got different domains for every entity that wants to use the database, and inside it you have plenty of incidents. Now, a user can have access to a domain with various levels of privileges. Administrator means that they can access everything and modify everything. Auditor means that they can read everything. And submitter means that they can start incidents. Researcher would be me, for example, if I, if I want to know uh, in your database uh, what has been the cost of uh, denial of services attacks on your organization recently. That is, if you allow me to have access. And then if you want to share data, um, let's say that I take you as an external expert. And then I say in my incident I want to allow all external experts to read the incident. Then you will be to able to access this incident only. And that way uh, I, can, I, can, I can have you help me without having to show you everything that's in the database. Okay, just a little bit more on, on what happens to the incidents. Basically, you enter them, they're new, somebody will take charge of the incident, work, going to work on the incident, and then the incident is going to be either resolved or it's going to be rejected because, I don't know, it, it, it didn't make sense or it, there was no, not really an incident underneath what happened. Okay. Now the costs. How do we know that an incident is really important or, or that it's really, or that we should devote a lot of research and, and efforts in solving a problem? Is that well, one way is by how much it costs to have uh, these incidents processed. Uh, also for general management. So there are two types of activity you do with this database. General activity, just looking around, searching, and then responding to an incident. So as I was saying with the personal software process, it's nice to have the machine do the accounting for you. So as you're working on the incident and doing stuff, the machine will uh, keep in memory how much time you spent doing what and going to uh, switch between those modes. And then there are other types of costs. Um, of course, you want to include the overhead in the actual cost multiplied by the duration. Um, then there are raw costs. For example, if equipment was stolen, 
then the cost of replacing it and, and so on. Um, I can't help a lot in, in, in establishing these uh, because they pointed out, for example, that, well, if you lose the opportunity of doing one thing, then you might be able to do something else in the meantime, work on a different homework or a uh, different report or whatever. And then you may be willing, you may, maybe you're working on this homework that's due in two hours, and you may be willing to pay $100 to have the service back. So that would be the willingness to pay. Now, now we're getting to the more interesting stuff uh, from the point of view of research. That is, um, what's, what's a type? And um, <laughs> what is this incident, actually? What do I do with it? Uh, is it sufficient to say that uh, it's a mail bomb or uh, it's a denial of service attack? Uh, so the way I went about it is that I made two types of classification, two levels. There's a risk type, there's what, what can happen as a consequence of the incident, and then the attack type, uh, which would be, for example, one of the SAS top 10. Um, for example, that would be uh, the use of weak passwords with uh, well-known user IDs. Um, this, is the, this is the way it looks. For each attack, you can have one risk type. And every attack has a risk type. And the attack may correspond to several CV entries. This is an attack types. Um, some, of, some of the entries in the SAS top 10 have more than a dozen C related CV entries, so vulnerabilities that can result in that. So the attack type dictates the risk type. Um, but as you're responding to the incident, uh, maybe you don't know yet what, what was the attack that was used against you. So you can specify the risk type independently of the attack type. But then if you identify the risk type because of this relationship, you can ask the database, what are the attacks that could have done that? And then you may look in the CV and say, well, no, I don't really have that on my system. And by process of elimination, then you might be able to find out which vulnerability was exploited. Now the interesting part is that I made the types dynamic. That is, I, instead of trying to find a classification that would answer everybody's needs, um, you can change the classification. You can change those types. And the way, um, the way we'll understand each other is that I classify the types themselves. <laughs> Let me give you an example, and maybe it will be easier uh, that way. For example, in, in company A, they may call something a root break-in. Company B, they call this a classified root crack because they might have classified and unclassified computers. And 
in C, well, that actually that's that is also part of B. Um, they want to distinguish between the root cracks in classified and unclassified computers. Now, if you notice, um, they all have the same consequence. They have the same access type. That is, they can list, read, write, execute files, and the privilege type is root. So I can query the database, and no matter how you name the risk type, I can I can request to uh, well, how much did uh, the incidents that involved account access of privilege type root cost, or how many were there last year? So this is this is the rest of the classification of risk types. There's a consequence. Uh, for example, exposure, that is, uh, you're leaking information to an enemy, or service loss, that would be a denial of service, um, or service theft. There's also the access type that you gain, which is, of course, relevant mainly if you have account access. And then the privilege type, uh, which also refers mostly to account access, but it might be that you executed commands with one of these privileges. For example, uh, when there are some vulnerabilities of web servers that allow you to execute commands with the privilege of the web server. And then there's, the, there's a priority assigned to this. Um, the priority is really uh, to help system administrators find out wh where they should direct their efforts first. And with this, you can also differentiate things based on the priority you want to assign them. For me, uh, a denial of service coordinated, that means um, like the distributed denial of service, many computers are coordinated to attack together on one target. Um, and if you want to distinguish between that and denial of services that are uncoordinated, that is one one on one, um, you can do so. You can make types to distinguish those, but then by accessing the underneath classification, then you can find out uh, more general properties. So you've got an incident, and you've worked out uh, what happened a little bit during the incident, and you want to find out what was the vulnerability that was used to plug it in, to, to, to close the hole. Um, so there are two ways that, I, that you can do it with this uh, incident response database. Uh, the first one is if you know the risk, then you can query the database for the types of attacks, and from the types of attacks, then you can get CV entries. The other way is um, from knowing the risk and doing a little bit of manipulation on the data of the type that I was just talking about, then you can translate that into what uh, ICAT understands. If you can specify the, o the operating system on the host and the software and the version they're using, then you can make a query on ICAT, and ICAT's going to give you all the CVE entries that are relevant to it.
of course that assumes that the vulnerability is publicly known. Well, I've been talking mostly so far about technical incidents. Uh, I'd just like to point out that there's also human incidents uh, that use uh, technical means to be done. For example, if you send anonymous death threats, or you harass somebody, uh, or you're uh, storing child pornography on your computer and maybe even distributing it, um, all, all these incidents also have their classification in the RDB and, and it's also necessary to respond to them. So all, all the methods that are discussed so far accepted using ICAT or the CVE applies to this. For example, you can make your own type classification and I'll be able to go into the database into your database and, and take out the information that I want. Conclusion, uh, the incident response database is designed to be used during an incident by contrast to reporting after the incident is closed. Um, the database system calculates the time you spend in each incident to help you calculate the cost of the incident. You can also add other costs. Uh, the classification is flexible so you can have it adapted to your needs. On top of that, um, the classification through the underlying uh, type classification can be translated. Then the IRDB um, provides some mechanisms to search other databases and access other resources, help you find the cause of the incident. And then finally, you can share the data you have timestamp archives and um, because there's email support also in the database you can send email and receive email uh, that provides you with the opportunity to have a complete record of the incident and then we can have this precious statistical data about what actually happened and, and where efforts should be directed Well, we're, we're finishing uh, currently uh, the first version of the IRDB. Uh, we have it. Uh, we have a few people testing it and using it. Uh, of course, the the incident that that dwarfs all others is port scans, just people trying out to break into your systems. Um, we hope we hope to have it adopted, of course, as widely as possible, because uh, the more the more people are using it, the better the data will be, and the better the research will be able to accomplish out of it. Um, right now, anybody uh, can request a domain to try it out uh, in the server we have in Sirius, and as soon as. Uh, uh, I'll, as soon as the comments and, and uh, 
criticisms slow down, we'll be able to have a good version to, to distribute. And well, I, I hope that in the next month we'll be able to distribute it. So, time frame of October. <laughs> Behind you. If you don't have questions, you're just going to do it again in French. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've used the terms exploit, attack, and vulnerability pretty much interchangeably. Do you make any differentiation can, between Can you repeat for me? You're using the terms exploit, attack, and vulnerability almost interchangeably. Are you making any differentiation? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, yes. Um, those are terms that... that various meanings to a lot of people. Um, uh, it, it is confused also by the CVE because the CVE describes vulnerabilities uh, by the effects that they can produce. If you look, if you look at the current CVE, uh, what you find actually are description of attacks because they don't want to give out the exact information about the vulnerability. And then you have to think, well, the vulnerability they're talking about is the vulnerability that can produce this attack, or the vulnerabilities, plural. Um, so there may be uh, several vulnerabilities that are exploited in one attack. Um, Um, an attack can be an exploit uh, the same way that an attack can be successful or not. I, I call ex exploits uh, successful attacks, but they also have the meaning of scripts that people can use to attack. Um, I mean, for the purposes of the database, are you making any differentiation or does it not matter? Is that not yes, yeah, okay. For the, for the database, uh, vulnerabilities are completely separate from attack. Actually, you, you, you go from risks to attacks, and then you can find out which vulnerabilities can have caused the attack. Uh, but I do not make uh, any distinction between an exploit and an attack. Actually, uh, in the database itself, I try to avoid the use of the word exploit. I just use attack. You use the term incident, and have you? What do you consider an incident? And then, more specifically, what is a rejected incident? Okay, uh, an incident is basically anything that can generate a complaint to uh, a system administrator or to computing services. Uh, that's why I distinguish between human and technical incidents. Uh, human incidents are those in which the meaning of the data is is meaningful, is is the dominant aspect position to technical incidents uh, in, in which it's actually the, the, the protocols or the codes that are, that are uh, made to work not the way they were supposed to work. Um, I'm not sure that answers your question. Well, let me ask it. If I install Windows 2000 and get a blue screen, does that constitute an incident if I report it? Um, yes, it does. It does. Uh, now, it, now, if it's right, right, right. I mean, I can I can reject it by saying, well, 
there's nothing I can do about it because uh, it's something that's frequent on 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 this system. Maybe not 2000. I, I don't know about 2000, but uh, um, let's say Windows 3.1. I can just dismiss it, or I can investigate it. If I dismiss it, then it would be a rejected incident. Or you could sometimes you have to replace it with Linux. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Pascal, uh, in your uh, data type classification examples, uh -huh. you used the priority code to differentiate between two types of, of entries. That is, that is, um, it's an option that you can use uh, on your end. It's not something that I really care about. Right. That th that is for the system administrator. My question is, do you have any other fields or any other provisions within those data types to differentiate between those two types of attacks that you mentioned? Or is it merely the priority code that differentiates the two? Um, okay, it, it works this way. Um, let me get, just a... Add underneath. No, no, I'm committed to acetate technology today. <laughs> um, so if, if this is uh, a record for an incident, uh, actually I mean for a type, then each type has an identification number. So that's that's the primary key of, of each type. Then then they have a name, which is meaningful for the user, or, or the administrator. Um, otherwise, inside here there are a few more uh, a few more fields like like, like I showed, um, and then the priority. From my point of view, you can have all these exactly the same, and it doesn't matter to me because when I'm going to query, I'm going to specify these, and then I'm going to get all your types that have the same values in these fields. Um, I guess I, w I would be wondering from a user standpoint, if so many fields that are similar, is this naming scheme then just merely a enumeration of various classifications just differentiated by the priority code? Um, I, I tried I to make it so that uh, these fields would be as meaningful as possible. Yet I wanted to be to be as small as small as possible also. Um, it's a trade-off between um, the usefulness for the end user and the, the, the complexity of the system and the classification, and also which data uh, we would like to get out of it. Um, I don't, I don't take these as fixed yet, but uh, from the other database that I've looked at, for example, ICAT and, and uh, other companies. Uh, are the most meaningful ones and uh, the most likely to be useful. Now if you want to make other differences on top, it's up to you.
and it, if those differences are adopted by a number of people, then it might be interesting, in effect, to migrate the difference into the, sub, the, the, the internal classifiers. Yes? You mentioned about the importance of the real timeliness aspect of your system. How did this affect your decisions while designing the system? Um, uh, on a number of, of uh, questions of technical implementations, uh, I made the web page pages expire as soon as they were served which means that the, the, the navigation doesn't work anymore with the back and forward buttons on the web browser. Everything has to be done with, with buttons so that and every time the new page, a fresh page is generated so that uh, every time up-to-date information is served. Uh, now um, there's a fundamental problem with uh, web technology in the sense that unless you use fancy, fancy protocols, fancy gizmos, uh, it's a, mainly a pull protocol. That is, I'm not going to get updated information until I request an update on the database. Uh, for example, the, the main page of the system has, has a number of indicators that that turn from uh, from green to red when an event happens. Um, well, if you just leave the web browser open, there's not going to be any change on its own from the way uh, it's implemented. Um, uh, you could view it as a defect. Uh, or as a possibility for later improvement in the sense that if, the, if it was possible to make the web page update itself. But the approach I've chosen is to, um, in the underlying system, uh, connect it to email. Um, now you could say also email is a pull protocol, but in, in most cases people have their email client repeatedly the server and as soon within a, within a certain interval um, if a new email comes in then there's a notification so within the polling interval of the email system you would get a notification that something important happened um, I'm, I'm not very, very familiar with how this works but aren't there uh, can you do server push pages or automatic refresh for this type of things that you just mentioned? Yeah, you can. It, it's uh, just not uh, implemented yet in the IRDB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you could force the, the refresh at certain intervals, yes. Why don't you start the web browser to show people the front end of it? Can you do that? Um, yeah, I can access it from here, I guess. Um, Oh, let's try Netscape. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we use SSL. I forgot to put the little S here. Okay. So, this is the welcome page. 
Now, apparently... <laughs> Sorry, I've been a little bit paranoid in the design of this system and, and um, I've been keeping up to date with the, bu the browser bugs, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry that I can't show it to you f this way unless it's got Internet Explorer installed. As soon as I need it. <laughs> oh yes, there we go. Okay. Uh, can I enter my password without the video showing it repeatedly? <laughs> so people. Now you can. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't remember my passwords. <laughs> Now, apparently I forgot to log out the last time I used it, and it reminds me and asks me when I actually finished my work. We'll say 11.15, and this illustrates the point I was saying. You try to remember later on, you don't know. So here we have a listing of domains that can be accessed. Uh, I'll use the biology domain because I've had permission from the system administrator to show some of the data here in demos. Um, so depending on the level of privilege you have different rows of actions that you can take. Everybody can do these actions that is change their user informations um, see the incidents in which you are involved, that is if you play a role in an incident and you can look at uh, the general management costs so far that, that you have incurred. If you're a researcher you can look at the cost so far of incidents by type uh, and by operating system. Um, here's a page to manage attack types and risk types. For example, I can ask to show the attacks that use that, that result in a penetration attack. And here in the menu are the types of attacks that can result in a root penetration. These are, these are all in the science top 10. And I have also human risk types. These are sorted by the priority I give them. So if you change the priority, for example, you, you think that where's, you know, you work at the Recording Industry Association and you think um, uh, MP3 is a capital offense, um, you can modify its priority. Let's give it to 99 here. Uh, of course, it affects copyrights as a theft of multimedia data. 
and um, now we have mp3 trading as the most important type of human uh, risk. <laughs> um, now let's go back to the main menu. Um, if I search for incidents here, I can specify a number of criteria. If I don't specify any, then I get the entire list. Um, and you will see here that most of them are port scans from various addresses, a couple from Korea. Um, and the owner is our good friend, tester Dwight McKay. And then I can, I can, we can look at this incident. Notice the incident as a random number because you can send email to the database and it's the same idea that you make it big enough that it's hard to guess. So very few people will be able to send unwanted emails to the database. So record the information. I can grab the ownership of the incident if, if I want to because I have admi administrator privileges. The technical risk is recon and uh, there's no operating system associated with it because it's a network event. Um, can specify a CVE entry and reclassify it for example. This should be a port scan. And now the classification here has been changed to port scan. Um, so is this updating the account for this particular entry? The yes. Time yes. Yes. The, the, the time is counted as I'm working on it. Does it determine that you're working on it? Uh, because I'm log logged in and um, I haven't logged out yet. And, I'm, and the last page that I requested was to work on this incident. Okay, so when you entered this incident, that's when it started timing for your work on it. Right, right. For example, um, when it started counting, now it stopped counting on that incident. But when I searched here, I displayed the results. And the moment I click here, it starts counting the time as being assigned to this incident. So as long as I think about this incident or um, that I view email on that incident or respond to email, it's uh, assigned to this incident. And so far, I can look at the cost. Well, um, the cost on that incident isn't much. I guess it's been very quick in answering it. Um, and I can look at how much time I've been spending on the database so far and how much it's, it's worth. And I can add additional costs. Uh, let's say we've got to replace a router or something like that, then I can add another cost here. So is there a way for them to pause? Like, for instance, they get a phone call. Good point. <laughs> very, 
version 1.01. Yes. What's your database backend? Currently, it's MySQL, but we're thinking of migrating it to PostgreSQL. Uh, the reason is because MySQL is uh, in such widespread use that we thought it's so exposed. If there were many bugs in it, they would have been found so far. And it's also really easy to set up and use. Of course, it's uh, very perf performant. On top of that, it's free. So if we di distribute uh, the system, then we don't have to pay uh, royalties. or from modifying the database directly? If it's on it's on a dedicated server. What? It's on a dedicated server, uh, and of course the database itself has access permissions and so on. Um, if you if you mean through the web interface, then of course there's a domain mechanism uh, as well as the role mechanism. That is. Um, if you don't have any privileges in one of these domains, they're not going to be listed at all as options. And, and even if you were able to engineer a query to submit to the web server, uh, of course the database checks everything before doing, allowing you to do anything. I mean, uh, uh, let me rephrase that. The PHP scripts that program and encode the logic of the database would first check the database to verify that you have the right permissions. And, and would deny you access. Another database question. Do you log every transaction on the, on the database, every change? Um, so that I can, if I had an incident and I wanted to follow it and I wanted to see someone else, see if someone else was uh, working on the same incident, could I see what specifically they changed on that incident? Okay, uh, the way it's done, there's one owner per incident. Uh, so only one person can actually change things on, on an incident. Uh, now, you, you saw I could grab ownership of the incident, and then I'm the only one allowed to work on the incident at that time. Other people can view it, but... Uh, right, at a later time, but if someone else takes control of your incident, can you see what they have done? Yes, uh, to some extent. There are two, uh, two facilities for that. One, every time the incident changes status, um, it's time-stamped uh, with uh, a little explanation why it's changed. Um, and there's also a way to add comments and uh, log what you've done so far in, in the incident. Uh, I guess it could be extended to be able to log every change with who did the change and, and, and what they changed. Um, I guess nobody has requested it yet, but it's something that can be implemented easily. Yeah. So the, the logging is not automatic then? If someone makes a change? There's partial logging that's automatic. Okay. But it's not, it's not over the entire... Uh, in, over all the fields of an incident. It could be if, if that's something that people wanted. Yes? You said that only the owner of the incident can make changes. Uh-huh. Still, you changed the type of the incident to port scan, and you were not the owner. So. Okay, bug alert. <laughs> um, right. I'll fix that. <laughs>
Yes. Um, in terms of the, the, the statistical information you're gathering, how much are you able to actually share between owners of uh, incidents since, for instance, there's a set of heuristics you're applying when you're up there going, well, there's no uh, OS because it was on the network, whereas someone else might say for each machine that got scanned, they log a different incident. How much sharing can actually be done between two different operators since without any, or are there guidelines that say you must log it this way to have valid statistical information to share? Well, there's there's certainly a number of, of definitions you've got to agree on, and, and you've got to understand the classification that you're working on. Um, it's not something uh, for which the database has safeguards, really. Uh, there is a help page defining terms, uh, but it's, it's, it's possible to make mistakes. Uh, and, and not agree ex that two people do not agree exactly on what is the incident. Yeah. I guess my question is: Do you feel that it's valid to share statistics between two different operators, since there already is that difficulty in just agreeing on the basic terms we're using? Well, by by defining the terms first uh, and having the, the the classification fairly simple, uh, I think that risk is fairly low. Um. Well, for instance, service theft is one of the things you had on there as a, as a thing. How does that differ from account access? Where would you, I mean, I think probably if you asked everyone... Service theft would, would be... Definitions. Right, right. Many people have different definitions for those, yes. Um, so... People using the database have to agree on the definition. Service theft would be, for example, uh, I have access to uh, an FTP server for work, and uh, I decide to use it for my personal use, or maybe a company that I'm running on the side. So I'm, I'm stealing FTP service from, uh, from where I work to run my Moonlight company to help run it. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, if people do not agree on, on the meaning of the terms, uh, then the categorization of the incidents can be wrong. The only thing we can do about that is, is uh, publish definitions and, and hope everybody understands the same thing. Perhaps there's room for any inline help next to the uh, fields where you want to enter things. Yes, yes. Um. Ivan Kersel built decision trees for the vulnerability database that he built that were intended to precisely solve that problem because you were you would answer the questions in sequence and follow the tree and it would tell you in the end how to classify it. Maybe something like that could be. Uh, I thought about I thought about that and the solution I went with because uh, it's uh, more work to represent a decision tree on a on a web page unless you you, you want to do. Graphics. I mean, represent them concisely. What I did is that I sorted them in order of which you con you would you should consider first. Um, when you look at uh, the types, when you're making it, no. I want to modify it so I can show the things. 
So for example here, these are the ones you should consider in order which would match uh, a decision tree of the type that Crusoe used. It's not exactly uh, as, as good because it doesn't show the definition of, uh, of the exact questions that, that you can look at when you use a decision tree. Uh, but uh, it's the closest I could, could come to with uh, poor man's HTML. Uh, on the other hand, everyone who uses this is going to have some sort of introduction to the system. So you could plain print a leaflet with the questions or the trees that... That's a good idea, yes. They enter the information then. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you, Pascal. Well, thank you.